0: Hey there, I'm Sariel. And I'm Umberto. We are the hosts of So You Think You Can Rule Persia, the podcast where we rate and review all the kings of Persia, from Dayokis to Yazdegerd III. Yeah, if you're interested in looking at the kings of Persia throughout history, from before the famous Persian Empire to the end, tune into our podcast where we talk about all the lives of these different kings. And we have a friend with us.
1: I'm Trevor Gulley, host of the History of Persia podcast, where I cover everything from about 700 BC down to 700 CE. However, we're here with a bit of a different project this time. I'm here with Alberto and Sariel to steal their podcast for a one-time live event. What are we calling this event? A choose-your-own Persian history podcast. <laughs> on sunday march 5th at 3 p.m eastern
0: and 9 p.m central european time
1: we will be going through a hypothetical reign of king cyrus iii what if cyrus the younger won the battle of Kanaxa and became king of kings but with a bit of a twist for this live event we are going to do a choose your own adventure podcast where you, the audience, are going to add your comments into the mix and choose which divergences from real history Cyrus the Younger is going to have to go down in our hypothetical. And then when we get to Cyrus's death, wherever that happens to be, we are going to follow So You Think You Can Rule Persia's ranking scheme and decide whether or not Cyrus the Younger would have been a Shahan Shah or a Shahan Nice. Tune in for this roller coaster. It'll be very fun. And you can get tickets at moment.co slash history of Persia. I didn't pick the URL, they just gave it to me. I think they created it before I even agreed to do the podcast. I feel like this was so chaotic. <laughs> I, if,
0: I, if I think A- it went rather ease. well.
1: <laughs> history of Persia is a Hopful Media Podcast production.
0: In his final days, Alexander the Great's generals asked him who should succeed him. Alexander's answer, the strongest. Taken literally, this would see the close of the classical Greek age, an age thousands of years in the making. Join me, Mark Selick, as I go back to retell the story of ancient Greece in my series Casting Through Ancient Greece. We will cast our way back to its beginnings, all the way through to the spread of its culture throughout the known world, thanks to Alexander and his generals. You can listen and subscribe to the series at www.castingthroughancientgreece.com, or you can listen on your favourite podcasting platform. Don't forget to follow the series over on Twitter at castinggreece or on Facebook at Greece. I look forward to seeing you there.
1: If you're listening to this, you probably know that the United States of America gets involved in a lot of foreign wars. We all know the big ones. World War I, World War II, Korea, sort of. Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, Iraq again. But before and in between all that, the story a lot of us heard in school is that the U.S. military didn't get out much. Turns out, That's kind of a blatant lie. I'm gonna guess a lot of us don't know about the multiple Spanish-American wars, the wars that led up to the Battle of Little Bighorn, or the baffling number of times we invaded Mexico. Odds are, you've never even heard of things like the time the Marines invaded Taiwan, or the Oconee Wars. I'm Trevor Cully host of the new podcast, America Secret Wars, where I am going to sit down with a guest in each episode and dive into the history of all the forgotten and overlooked times that the United States deployed military force against other nations. You can find America Secret Wars at secretwarspod.com on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia. This is episode 91... The Great Satrap's Revolt. Last time, we covered the subtle origins of the Great Satrap's Revolt. The chronology of events is hard to discern. We have to pick out details from basically every source that so much as references the period. There's a few big ones, Diodorus Siculus and Cornelius Nepos in particular, but we're totally reliant on matching events from Greece to events from Egypt to events from Anatolia. Thus far, Datames, satrap of Cappadocia, had been warned that failure to conquer Egypt would result in his execution. He went north and started campaigning against frequently rebellious peoples who were technically still at peace with the empire. It was a convenient cover for why he had abandoned his post in Acre while he built up a stockpile of looted treasure to melt down and mint coins so he could hire mercenaries. He came to an agreement with Ariobarzanes, the satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia, whose father may also have been executed for failing to take Egypt and they began trying to induce revolt among their neighbors. They had brief success with Mausolus of Caria, but he backed out around 367. In the wider Aegean world, Thebes had utterly crushed any semblance of Spartan hegemony and forced the other Greeks to approve an amendment to the king's peace, allowing Thebes to become hegemon. In this, they restored Messenia to independence and liberated half of Sparta's Helot slaves. In the north, they had extended their influence through Thessaly and Macedon, taking the teenage Prince Philip as political hostage and ward of their leading generals. Athens found itself at war with the Odrysian king of Thrace, Cotys and was almost tricked into supporting Ariobarzanes' rebellion after the rebel satrap conquered Sestos from the Thracians. However, the Athenian general Timotheus realized what was happening and diverted his forces to campaign in the Thracian Chersonese, where they would have to fight an army led by the former Athenian general Charidemos. Instead, Ario Barzanes received mercenaries recruited by the bitter old King Agesilus of Sparta, who resented Artaxerxes II for everything that had happened to his people since leaving Anatolia himself. Before we dive into today's events, I want to offer an apology slash explanation for what might feel like a deluge of names and dates in recent episodes. I know those are two things that a lot of people find annoying about learning history. To a certain extent, my hands are tied. It's really hard to talk about events and battles without giving some names or reducing everything to the very abstract and impersonal Sparta did this, Persia did that. I don't want to do that. For all its flaws, the great man, or at least powerful man, approach to history is slightly more applicable to the ancient world when the whims of autocratic generals and kings really did dictate policy. With the benefit of precise dates from Diodorus and Xenophon, noting each year as an easy way to keep track of the order of events— It's not like actually knowing the number 367 is important, but knowing that things attached to 367 come before 365 is helpful when I have to jump between events in like half a dozen locations to explain what's happening. But more importantly, I've been slipping in a few names of people who are kind of ancillary to the current narrative just to introduce them. It is not a secret where this podcast is going. Alexander the Great is just around the corner, and the last decade of Artaxerxes II's reign starts featuring the first appearances of people who will utterly define the last generation of Achaemenid rule. The turmoil of the 360s is very much the origin story for the chaos of the 330s. But for now, we're in the 360s, specifically sometime around 364 BCE. Datames' son, Susinus, has fled to the royal court to raise the alarm about the quiet revolt playing out in Anatolia. Datames and Ariobarzanes successfully followed the model of Cyrus the Younger to build up their strength and hoped they would have more success resisting Artaxerxes than their predecessor had in trying to dethrone him. After Ariobarzanes seized Sestos, the great king was left with no choice but to declare war on the rebels. Fortunately, he still had two loyalists in Anatolia. Mausolus had opted not to revolt and keep Caria on the king's side. Atophridates had remained steadfast in Lydia, but with Cilicia and Cappadocia under Datames, both of the loyal satrapies were cut off from the rest of the empire. Artaxerxes called up a royal army and placed it under the command of his grandson, Artabazus the son of the late Pharnabazus, satrap of Phrygia, and princess Apame. Just 20 years old, part of Artabazus's task was defeating Datames and continuing on to depose his elder half-brother, Ariobarzanes, with the promise of ruling his ancestral satrapy as a reward. But this is when Datames went on the offensive. He led his troops, probably alongside some of Ario men, out of Cappadocia and crossed the Euphrates, intending to face Artabazus' force before they could even enter Anatolia. It would also provide the opportunity to plunder someone else's territory for a change. But Artabazus was slower than anticipated, and northern Mesopotamia, less ideal terrain when it comes to foraging food, as seen in Cyrus the Younger's March on Canaxa back in episode 80. Datames decided to withdraw and set up his defenses at the Cilician Gates, the easily defended mountain pass between Cilicia and Syria. Only then did he realize why Artabazus might be taking so long. With Datames in Assyria, Cilicia had been left undefended, and its northern neighbors in Caria and Lydia revealed themselves as loyalists by invading the strategic satrapy from the west. Following the same route taken by Cyrus the Younger 40 years before, Autophridates led an army from west to east, and occupied the Cilician Gates before Datames could do anything about it. Not only did this cut him off from the wealthiest part of his territory and the accompanying ports, but also the primary mint that supplied his mercenaries with pay. Datames was forced to withdraw into Cappadocia and pick a defensible position near the foot of a mountain where he couldn't be encircled by the two invading armies. We're left with an odd situation here, where Nepos says Autophridates invaded, Diodorus says it was Artabazus, and Polyinus doesn't mention the commander. Diodorus says that Artabasus came with a large army. Polyinus says that Datames had a large force in Assyria. And then Nepos says that Datames had a small army compared to Atophrodates' 40,000. The composite image I would draw from that is that Datames had a sizable force compared to just Artabazus' recruits from the east, but when the two loyalist commanders joined forces, Datames was outmatched. The specific ethnicities Nepos mentions also elucidate the political situation. He mentions that 8,000 Cappadocians fought on the Loyalist side, suggesting that many of Datumy's own subjects opposed his rebellion. There's also several thousand Armenians and Cardukian mercenaries, suggesting that the new satrap of Armenia, whoever came after Orontes, was involved as well. Nepos also mentions Paphlagonians and Pisidians, people who had been wrongly accused of revolt to cover for Datumese, who now lent their support to the Loyalist side. Nepos says that Datumese was outnumbered 20 to 1, but also that the Loyalists had a few hundred thousand. So, clear exaggeration, but Datumese was probably outnumbered. Despite that, he chose his position well, and the rebels were able to inflict massive damage on the invading army. Autophridates and Artabazus were forced to retreat, withdrawing back into Lydian or Carian territory. Diodorus puts the defection of Mithrobarzanes, Dademis' father-in-law, here, which I discussed in the context of the Pisidian campaign from Nepos in the last episode. That version makes more sense with the way things play out for mithra specifically. But it wouldn't be surprising if there were more defections here, given that there were Cappadocians on both sides of the battle. At the same time, more conflicts were playing out in Lycia. The regions of southwestern Anatolia between Cilicia's western mountains and the Mediterranean. Traditionally, Lycia had been left more or less to its own devices, with semi-autonomous dynasts allowed to compete for power in their own territory, and a string of Persian marriage alliances to keep them on board with the imperial project. At the outset of the Great Satrap's Revolt, Lycia was split between two competing dynasties. And over the course of the war, a third emerged as well. Artumbara the Mede ruled Xanthos in the east, the traditional seat of Lycian power. Pericles, apparently a part Greek or at least Hellenizing dynast, held Lemira in the west. Pericles in particular was making moves to claim the whole country as his own, and invaded Artumbara's territory during the 360s. Between the two competing dynasts, a third named Mithrapata appeared in the city of Phelos, which was traditionally Xanthian territory. Some very scant evidence might suggest that Artumbara was the son or grandson of Artiphios, the son of the very first rebel satrap Megabizus. Artiphios himself was executed for supporting the rebellion of Assyria at the outset of Darius II's reign. If that's the case, Artambara made a fatal error by not following in his ancestors' footsteps and rebelling. Instead, he contributed troops to the royal army sent to hunt down Datames and was apparently defeated in battle when Pericles invaded Xanthos. That left Pericles of Lemira in control of most of Lycia, while Mithropata held out in Fellos. Neither of the remaining dynasts have any direct connection to Datames and Ariobarzanes' rebellion but neither was cooperating with the Loyalists either, which puts them in the rebel camp by default. In the late 360s, probably around 363 when Autophradades was busy with Datames, Mausolus led his carrion army into Lycia and defeated both of the remaining dynasts. Rather than installing new local rulers within the Lycian system, The whole thing was just absorbed into the Carrion satrapy. It was probably on that trip to Lycia that Mausolus first encountered the grand tombs of the Lycian nobility. He was far from the first conqueror to be taken in by their design. Built in a similar shape to a small house, either freestanding on stone platforms or carved from the mountainside, both the tombs of Cyrus the Great and the royal necropolis at naqsh rostam bear striking resemblances to the Lycian model. However, in the centuries of Persian rule and growing Greek influence, the tombs of the dynasts got grander and grander, growing larger and taking on the appearance of miniature Greek temples crossed with the old style of Cyrus's mausoleum. Though nobody would have called it a mausoleum at the time. These tombs, especially the so-called Nereid Monument of Artembara's predecessor at Xanthos, served as the inspiration for Mausolus' own burial. Around this same time, the satrap of Caria relocated his government to the Greek city of Halicarnassus, which had been home to Caria's regional governors in past generations. There, he and his sister-wife began construction on the famed Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, a tomb so impressive that its design was associated with his name forevermore and identified as one of the seven wonders of the world by generations of Greek and Roman authors. Though Egypt is still independent for the time being, and Olympia is in whatever weird gray zone you want to ascribe to 4th century Greece, this is the fifth of the Seven Wonders of the World to appear in semi-Persian territory over the course of the show, and the last two won't be built until after the fall of the Achaemenid dynasty. We've seen the Great Pyramids of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, the Statue of Olympian Zeus, and now the Mausoleum. There's no Alexandria to have a lighthouse yet, and the Colossus of Rhodes is a hundred years away. But, speaking of Rhodes, the large island off the Carian coast was officially an independent Greek state in the Second Athenian League. But in 364 it was besieged by Thebes. Over in Greece, Thebes' official position as only hegemon allowed by the great king's peace lasted all of a year before the other Greeks realized they had made a terrible mistake. Many of the Peloponnesian city-states that eagerly agreed to Theban terms realized that the reappearance of Messenia and their new capital at Megalopolis put a Theban protectorate right on their borders, which could do basically whatever they wanted with impunity. Fighting back against the Messenians would mean inviting war with Thebes. So the Peloponnesian League reformed, with Sparta nominally at its head, but greatly weakened and started resisting Theban control. Likewise, the Thessalian League chafed under their southern neighbors' dominance and outright support for Macedon. Of course, the Macedonians hadn't harmed Thessaly yet, but when he killed his regent and recalled his brother Philip from Thebes in 365, King Perdiccas III started making expansionist moves by allying with King Cotus in Thrace to try and seize Greek cities around the Chalkidakes. Thessaly delivered the only real significant blow against Thebes throughout this whole period by killing Pelopidas, one of the leading Boearchs who had directed the Theban ascendancy, but it was hardly a game-changer. The Second League was organizing the charge here, and Thebes sent out a fleet to attack some of their members in the Aegean, especially those on the Persian coast that were facilitating Egyptian supplies passing to Sparta and Athens. Pharaoh Nachneb saw Artaxerxes II's approval of Theban power and supported anybody who was working against what seemed to be Persia's primary vassal. If there was enough trouble in Greece, then maybe he could draw Artaxerxes' attention there and away from Egypt. That also included negotiating for aid with Ariobarzanes and the rebels of Anatolia. But this happened by way of passing Egyptian gold to Agesilus in Sparta in the form of coins minted as copies of Athenian currency. Agesilus could take this and use it to support Ario mercenary efforts and spread bribes around with his contacts in Anatolia. applying to grad school. In just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them. But just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program. Available on desktop or as an app, it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. 363 BC saw Autophridates taking the Ionian fleet and shifting gears to try and beat Ariobarzenes, apparently leaving Artabasis to deal with Datumese. Atophridates besieged Assos, a Mediterranean port in northwestern Anatolia, while mausolus took the Carian fleet to Sestos on the Sea of Marmara. In a true illustration of how messy the whole Western Empire had gotten, Mausolus arrived at Sestos to find it already besieged by land. A Thracian army commanded by King Cotis himself was trying to retake the city, too. Cotus and Mausolus just traded off, as Persia had no specific interest in holding the city forever and Codis still had an Athenian army rampaging through his territory. War against Thebes was a young man's game, or at least a game for men who hadn't disastrously lost wars against them before. So while new Spartan commanders took the field in Greece, Agesilus sailed to the Hellespont in person, where he negotiated with or bribed Atophrodates to abandon Assos and he entreated Mausilus on the basis that he had been a friend of his father back during the Corinthian War. Both of the loyalist commanders backed off, possibly because Ageslus also made threats about coming back with an army of his own. While the loyalist satraps were engaged with Ariobarzanes, Datames launched another offensive campaign, this time into Caria. He got as far as Aspendus, the site of several past battles along the Eurymedon River, probably trying to come around Cilicia from the west and retake his southern territory without having to deal with the Cilician Gate. By then, some of his own soldiers were fed up with the rebellion. None of the sources say which ones, but I'll go out on a limb and guess it was the mercenaries, since he no longer had any mints to pay them. Possibly at the instigation of Artabazus and the loyalists, some of these disaffected soldiers hatched a plan to murder Datames. Some true rebels caught wind of the plot and informed their satrap. The rebel abandoned his usual regalia that marked him as the ruler and commander on the battlefield and had another man ride on his horse in full costume as a body double. Datames himself put on the uniform of one of his own bodyguards and marched with them as they passed Aspendus. When the conspirators attacked, Datames was ready and loosed arrows and javelins on the double agents as they approached, wiping out the traitors in his midst. But the mastermind of this plot had not been identified. Unbeknownst to the rebels, they had a number of loyalists among them, working to bring down the rebellion from the inside. Datemi's campaign into Caria may also explain a story about Mausolus told by the historian Polyanus. Latmus, a minor Greek city on the Carian coast, revolted around this time. While trying to retake the city in a siege, Mausolus took a number of captives but he released many of them and asked a number to stay on if they wished to become his bodyguard. He paid these Latmians and lavished them with gifts as he packed up his camp outside the city and sent word that he would hire more men from Latmus if they were interested, but he was giving up the siege. 300 came out, and he marched off with them to deal with a rival in Ephesus then came back on his way to deal with another uprising in Caria. Since he was marching with the Latmians and marched nearby without raising the issue, the city relaxed and opened its gates, despite refusing to pay tribute to Mausolus. Only then did the Carian forces move in, storming the city and recapturing it without any trouble. 362 and 361 Proved to be a momentous period in Aegean history, which is probably part of the reason that Diodorus crams the entire Satrap's revolt into that single year. There was just so much going on that it's more dramatic that way. Anatolia had become a drawn out stalemate, even with the introduction of Artabasis and a royal army. Egyptian and Spartan aid only prolonged the situation. Ariobarzanes was too heavily dug in at some of the most fortified cities in the Northwestern Empire, Datamese was too skilled of a strategist to be defeated in the field, and the international situation had basically encircled the entire eastern Mediterranean in a series of competing interests, who all had to outbid each other for mercenaries. Events in Greece and Egypt are the easiest to deal with in a vacuum, so start there. In Greece, the Theban War against Sparta's Pseudo-Peloponnesian League and the Second Athenian League came to a head. Ironically, this was the spirited Spartan defense of Matinea, you might remember that immediately after the king's peace was signed, Agesilus led the Spartans to destroy Mantinea and split it up into four smaller towns as retribution for siding with Thebes during the Corinthian War. Well, Thebes invaded the Peloponnese, Mantinea reformed their old citywide government, only to discover that the Thebans supported Messenia completely and overshadowed Mantinea's regional influence. So Mantinea went back to Sparta this time. Then a Theban army under Epimonidas marched out to face their enemies for the Battle of Mantinea. The anti-Theban force was only two-thirds the size of the invasion army, but after years of battling Thebans, they had at least learned to counter Epimonidas' personal tactics. Thebes was able to force the allies to retreat, but at the cost of heavy losses, including the general himself. It was a completely Pyrrhic victory. Thebes claimed the battlefield, but was forced to make peace immediately afterward, abandoning any claim they had to territory outside of Boeotia and restoring the original terms of the king's peace. Thebes was still the most influential Greek city-state, but their dominance was no longer unchallengeable. Given the many changes and lack of Persian mediation in these recent negotiations, the new version is sometimes called the common peace. At 80 years old, King Agesilus of Sparta wasn't in town to relish in his rival's defeat. He may have been old, but he was still revered for his skill as a strategist, and had apparently come to the conclusion that life in a peacetime weakened Sparta just wasn't for him. After getting a taste for war against Persia again while negotiating for Ariobarzanes and the rebellion, Agesilus sailed to Egypt. Pharaoh Noctneb was getting old himself at this point, but recognized that the regular succession crises that troubled his recent predecessors, made Egypt too vulnerable to a Persian attack. He appointed his son Jedhor, also known as Teos, to become his co-pharaoh in the mid-360s. By 362, Naktneb was dying, and pharaoh Jedhor was running the Egyptian military. With Persian attention focused on Anatolia, Egypt was preparing to go on the offensive and finally restore their dreams of rebuilding the Egyptian Empire, last seen in the Bronze Age. Jedhor hired two famous Greek generals as his mercenaries. Agesilus was put in command of the Greek army, while the Athenian Chabrias, who had previously served Egypt a decade earlier came as a private citizen to command the Egyptian navy. According to Xenophon, Agesilus hoped that Jedhor would provide the army and ships needed to invade Ionia, giving Agesilus his final chance to break the Greeks of Anatolia out of Persian control. But the pharaoh had absolutely no interest in this. Anatolia was already engaged but Phoenicia and Palestine were ripe for the taking. Before he set out, Jedhor settled things with one last ally. The Persian rebels in Anatolia had sent one of their local governors named Reo to negotiate with Egypt for more direct support. Happy to further tie up the Persian navy with problems in the north, the pharaoh provided a large payment to hire mercenaries and 50 triremes. Creomithras took these back to Anatolia, intending to continue the war against Artaxerxes. But by the time he arrived, he found that the situation changed dramatically in his absence. Now, because Diodorus crams everything into this two-year period, we are left a little confused by what you'd think was one of the most important aspects of the great satraps' revolt. According to Diodorus, the rebel satraps Ariobarzanes and Dadames were not actually the leaders of the overall resistance movement. Instead, he says that they, along with the other local governors under their command, appointed the Persian with the most prestigious lineage to be their commander-in-chief. Ariobarzanes himself came from a distinguished line of satraps and nobles that could claim descent from Histaspes, the father of Darius the Great, as a cadet branch of the Achaemenid house. However, one of his subordinates had an even loftier lineage. Welcome back, Orontes. The former satrap of Armenia had been sent to Mysia, an inland region of Phrygia, as punishment for lying to Artaxerxes during the war against Cyprus. But as the eldest living heir to the Hidarnid clan, Orontes was still one of the highest-ranking members of the Persian nobility alive at the time. Diodorus says he was chosen as the overall commander of the rebellion, possibly an allusion to the idea that he would have been king of Anatolia had the rebels been successful. However, we don't hear about Orontes at all in any of the other sources for this revolt. So if Diodorus' story is true, then Orontes may not have been chosen until pretty late in the game. Perhaps there had been disagreements about who should be in charge, or maybe it was just that they were struggling to fend off armies from Atophrodates, Mausolus, and Artabasis all at once, and hoped that a centralized command structure would help. If that was the goal, they made a terrible choice. Orontes saw betraying these rebels as his way back into Artaxerxes' good books so he started collecting money and making plans for a rebel offensive, while intending to use everything he collected to deliver the rebels to Artaxerxes in chains. Ariobarzani's son, Mithridates of Chios, was placed in command of one of the rebel armies and tasked with raiding Lydia, taking the offensive against the Loyalists. He was remarkably successful capturing border fortresses and plundering the Lydian treasuries over the course of the rebellion. He became very popular with his own troops because of the surplus plunder he paid out as bonuses. And as Datames was struggling to maintain the loyalty of his mercenaries after losing Cilicia, Mithridates started subsidizing the Cappadocian rebels. He had met Datames once before the rebellion started, but had truly endeared himself to the Cappadocian satrap now. In his letters to both his father and Datames, he boasted about his victories and mocked the loyalists, playing into the hothead reputation of a young commander to highlight his own commitment to the rebel cause. It was all a ruse. Artabazus, commander of the royal army that had invaded in 364, was his uncle and at some point after Artabazus arrived, Mithridates had secretly gone over to the Loyalist side. He laid out a plot to gain Datames' trust, and with Artaxerxes II's explicit permission, assassinate the rebel in Cappadocia. Once Mithridates was confident that Datames would trust him, he arranged a meeting to plan a new offensive. This sounds very similar to Orontes' plan described by Diodorus, and it wouldn't be surprising for it to be part of the same plot. Mithridates arrived at the meeting place in advance and hid a pair of swords, but conducted the actual meeting without incident. Completely lulled into a false sense of security, Datames happily returned when Mithridates sent a messenger after him on the pretense of adding more to their plans. Datames came back, alone, expecting a brief conversation, and was cut down immediately. Cappadocia was already divided between loyalist and rebel factions, and without Datames to lead the rebellion, the whole province slipped neatly back into Artaxerxes' hands. On a practical level, this would have doomed the remaining rebels in Hellespontine Phrygia anyway. But events in Egypt sealed the deal. By now, there were three generations of adult Egyptian royals alive from the 30th dynasty. The aged pharaoh Nakhtneb was left in the palace at Sebenutos with his younger son to govern domestic affairs. Nocteb's Elder son and co-pharaoh Jedhor sailed to Phoenicia with his army where he and the Greeks led by Agesilus besieged Sidon and may have induced other cities like Tyr to surrender outright. Then Agesilus went with Jedhor's nephew, Nakthorheb, to invade Palestine and inland Syria. It's not clear whether this army marched across the Sinai and came up from the south, or landed with the fleet in Phoenicia and marched down from the north. Either version could explain an anecdote from the Roman Jewish historian Flavius Josephus. As Josephus tells it, the Persian general Begoses did a horrible thing by imposing tribute on Judea and making the temple pay its share. This is a kind of bizarre claim. By the 4th century, every province and temple paid tribute. But it gets even bizarrier. Jonathan, the high priest of the Jewish temple, opposed this taxation, but his brother Yeshua, usually translated as Jesus, was an ally of Boghossi's. The two brothers fought inside the temple precinct, and Jonathan killed Yeshua. Josephus tells us that Bagoses marched on Jerusalem and tried to arrest Jonathan inside the temple, but was stopped by the local magistrates and proceeded to, quote, punish the Jews for seven years for the murder of Yeshua. Josephus provides no context for this story, other than saying that it happened in the reign of Artaxerxes. By context, we know not Artaxerxes I, and that it was during the time of High Priest Jonathan. References to Jonathan and a Persian governor named Bagavaya in the Elephantine archives from Darius II's reign help identify the Artaxerxes in question as Artaxerxes II. But Josephus is useless for explaining why Persian tribute would suddenly be unpopular, especially if you follow my belief that Artaxerxes II just rebuilt the city walls. Nor does it explain why the murder of Yeshua resulted in seven years of punishment that include, in Josephus' words, polluting the temple, and enslaving the people. For one dude murdering another dude. That's not really the thing you get armies involved for. But the Egyptian invasion, led by Agesilus and Nachthoreb, might explain it. If Egypt was trying to annex cities along the border with Persia, Judea and Jerusalem would be right near the top of the list. The mountain pass at Megiddo had always been the key artery for Egyptian armies passing north, and in the Iron Age, Judea often fluctuated between Egyptian and Mesopotamian spheres of influence. Many famous biblical prophets like Jeremiah or Ezekiel found themselves at odds with the kings of Judah over that exact issue. If the same sort of politics were playing out again, then the story from Josephus makes plenty of sense. Jonathan opposed Persian tribute because he had sided with Egypt. Yeshua was a friend of Boghossi's because he was supporting Persia. Thus their personal conflict was not simply a quarrel between brothers and priests that could be dealt with by internal Jewish mechanisms. It was a microcosm of the larger war in the Levant, and Boghosses attacked Jerusalem to retake it, because the pro-Egyptian Yonathan was leading the city. That explanation requires a lot of guesswork and assumptions, but it does make sense in the wider context of Near Eastern history. Up in the north, Jedhor's offensive had to be funded somehow and he turned the vast reserves of treasure and land held by Egyptian temples into his personal bank account. His taxation policy on the religious institutions of his country was deeply unpopular, and his younger brother, acting as regent for their dying father, recognized this. When Nakhneb died in 361, his grandson Nakhorheb declared himself pharaoh and began marching south out of Palestine to return to Egypt. Agesilus was hesitant to join him, given that Pharaoh Jedhor was his official paymaster. But further news from Egypt brought Agesilus around to Nakhorheb's side. With one pharaoh dead, a second off besieging Phoenicia, and a third on his way home but far away, all from the same dynasty, a military official who stayed behind to command domestic forces, made his own bid for the throne. With Egypt being pulled in three different directions, Agesilus realized that if he didn't pick the right side, he and his mercenaries would be up the Nile without a paddle. So he backed the pharaoh he had on hand, conveniently also the candidate with the most soldiers. They marched back to Egypt with Nakhorheb, and the third claimant had the misfortune of being based in Mendes, near enough to the Sinai that Nekthorheb and his father were able to march against them from opposite directions and surround them. The general was defeated, and all of Egypt went to Nakhthorheb's faction, continuing the 30th dynasty and leaving Jedhor a king without a country. He was forced to seek refuge in Sidon, when the Egyptian fleet sided with his nephew. Ironically, this probably saved Jedhor's life. A new royal army was on its way, even as the succession crisis upended Egyptian politics. Finally fed up with the apparent incompetence of his satraps, Artaxerxes dispatched his son and heir. Prince Ochus to deal with the Egyptian assault. Ochus arrived in Phoenicia and quickly put an end to the invasion. His forces defeated the Egyptians near Sidon and drove them back into their own country. When news of the Egyptian defeat reached Anatolia, the game was clearly up. Priomithras, who commanded the ships and money sent from Jedhor the previous year, got on board with Orontes and Mithridates to bring the rebellion down from the inside. Orontes and Reamithres arranged a meeting of the local governors and generals in rebellion and ordered their mercenaries to detain the rebel leaders. Orontes personally took the captives south, delivering them to Prince Ochus somewhere in Syria to return to the Persian court for adjudication and execution. Last but certainly not least, only one man could successfully capture Ariobarzanes. His own son, Mithridates, was tasked with going to his father under false pretenses and capturing him on behalf of the great king. Ariobarzanes was sent back to court in chains, where King Artaxerxes had him crucified. But it is not clear which king Artaxerxes this was. It was either a fitting conclusion or a dramatic opening to a reign marked by so much rebellion. But we are not quite through with Artaxerxes II. Next time, we jump back in time to the royal court and see what has been happening in Parsa in the latter half of Artaxerxes' astonishing time as king. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you'll find things like my bio, the bibliography, podcast merchandise, and the Achaemenid family tree. You'll also find the support page where you can help out this project financially. That includes one-time donations, affiliate links, and most importantly, Patreon also found at patreon.com slash historyofpersia. Patreon offers a monthly subscription where you get access to things like bonus episodes, merchandise, discounts, ad-free listening, and reading recommendations. Subscription tiers range from just $1 to $20 and do a lot to keep the lights on. You don't have to spend money to support me, though. You can also do that by leaving a review on your podcast platform of choice, and most importantly of all, telling other people to listen. Independent podcasts live or die by word of mouth, so tell your friends, tell your family, and share on social media. You can find me at History of Persia on Twitter, or History of Persia Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Until the next time, thank you all so much for listening to History of Persia.